Well, it truly is a joy to get to be with everyone this morning. Um, I would have never thought that it was a rarity that we would get to have 50 people gather in a building together to worship the Lord, uh, yet we rejoice that in the midst of the season we are able to do this. Uh, prior to diving into our text this morning, may you guys join me once again as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do come before you with praise and adoration. Lord God, we rejoice for this Advent season, a season in which we get to focus clearly and visibly on your Son, Jesus, getting to focus our attention on the good work that he did. Lord God, we rejoice that in your divine providence you sent him to earth to dwell among us, to teach us, to ultimately be the sacrifice that we ultimately deserve to be. Yet he took that upon himself, Lord, that we may have life through you. And we rejoice, Lord, that that's what the season is about. And God, I pray that we spend time this season truly focusing on that fact, focusing on the reality of who your son is and how he has changed our life and changed this world. Lord God, may this be a season in which we center on you. For Advent, I feel like this season of year is so often a season where we're looking at everything else but you, looking at what we want, what we want to receive, what we want to give. But rather, Lord, may we center on who you are this season. And Lord God, we pray for our community at large, Lord, recognizing that we are not able to gather like we normally would on a Sunday. God, we pray for our people as they're tuning in via live streams or we've done email versions throughout these last few weeks. God, we pray that we continually are fed in your word. Lord God, that on Sundays, in whatever form, we come to you in worship and adoration, Lord, but throughout the week as well, we spend adequate time striving to just get away for those moments with you. Lord God, we recognize many of our students have gone home for break. And Lord, for some, home is a glorious place full of life and joy. But for others, Lord, we recognize that going home is, is a hard place. There's struggles, there's, there's anger. There's, for many people, a lack of faith in the home. God, we pray for those that, that this holiday season is actually a burden and a struggle. Lord, may they turn to you and find joy and find satisfaction in the gift of life. And God, I pray that we as a people can be a vibrant element in this community of Corvallis. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the needs of this community, that we may love people well, that we may serve people well in a season that many are downtrodden. May we lift them up. And Lord God, we pray for our nation. Lord, for many, our nation is hurting, it's struggling, it's in pain. God, I, I pray for President Trump, Lord, that as you say in 1 Timothy 2, Lord, we are called to pray for them and to pray that they pursue peace and justice. And Lord, we also pray for President-elect Biden as this transition is happening. Lord, that he also will be one that pursues peace and justice. God, we pray that you do a work within these men's lives, that they may be actually able to glorify you in the work that they do. Lord, that by your hands, you can do a mighty work in this country, God, and we pray that in your name. Lord God, we come to you knowing that you are faithful. 
Lord God, we come to you knowing that you hear us and that you respond. And that as we go into your word this morning, we know that you speak to us. So God, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth will be pleasing and edifying to you and to you be the glory. In your name, amen. You see, we all have a thing for glory. We all have a thing for greatness. Within us is the question, who is the greatest? You see, it seems like a month doesn't go by that we don't have some form of an award show or some magazine publishing some honor, especially as we're getting into the tail end of the year. You have the awards like the Times Person of the Year or Times 100 Most Influential People, Fortune 500 Companies, People Magazine, Sexiest Man Alive, the Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, the Tonys, the Grammys, the Emmys, the New York bestsellers, greatest college towns in America. The list could go on and on. And you see, we, see, we so often even get caught up in engaging in these ongoing debates about greatness. What's the greatest food? What's the greatest book, the greatest movie, the greatest song in 2020? Who would have thought we're probably arguing about what the greatest mask is? You see, you fill in the blank. We're constantly striving and looking towards greatness. Or the ongoing and what seems like never-ending debates that we love to get into, knowing that we can never actually come to a full, sure conclusion. Like for all the sports fans out there, with the question, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? LeBron James or Michael Jordan? And I'm sure people in this room automatically are like, well, that's not, that's a no-brainer. I obviously know who that is. You see, within that specific debate, you have many aspects that drive that conversation. Arguments are made for, for what era the athlete played in, arguing that one era is more difficult than the other. Or they look at awards. Who has the most final appearances, final championships, finals MVPs, regular season MVPs, defensive player of the year, shooting awards. Or they look at statistics, career points, career steals, career assists. See, we have a thing for greatness. We have a thing for awards. And all these awards, the countless hours spent debating and defending your claims boils down to one question. What does it mean to be great? And followed off of that, how is greatness achieved? And as we'll notice today, the, the way the Bible speaks about greatness looks so different than the way the world addresses that topic. The way the Bible and the world define greatness are two wildly different things. See, I believe that we were all created by a great God, the one and only great God. And being made in his image, I think our fascination with greatness stems a little bit from this Imago Dei of being made in his image. But to truly understand greatness, we need to look 
to the only one who is actually great, and therefore the only one who can actually define it. In our text today, we see Jesus answer that question. And it's not what you would expect. For he ultimately takes society's script and flips it on its head. You see, he argues that to be truly great is to be truly humble. To be truly great is to be truly humble. And we see this in verse 30 through 32, and really this first focus of humility in the exemplar Christ. And in the second section, 33 through 37, humility in the call of discipleship. So let's turn to verse 30 of Mark chapter 9, focusing on humility in the exemplar Christ. And these verses say, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, that is Jesus, did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Jesus trekking through Galilee ultimately brings us back to the beginning of the gospel of Mark. When Jesus began his earthly, king, or his earthly ministry back in chapter one, he proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he went all throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. His preaching and work became so popular that he could not enter into any area without being bombarded by people, wanting to see him, wanting to touch him, wanting to be healed by him. And yet here, he passes through Galilee once again without being recognized. Jesus intentionally is being unseen for what seems like two focused reasons. One, we see that he desires this intentional um, and uninterrupted time to teach his disciples. And second, he has a compulsion to press forward to Jerusalem to ultimately fulfill his passion, the reason he came, to die the death we deserved. See, in the middle of chapter 8 of Mark, we really see this turning point as Jesus' trajectory is constantly headed towards Jerusalem, and nothing will get in his way as he heads on his journey to the cross. This scene is the second of two episodes where Jesus intentionally and clearly teaches his disciples about what is to come for him. The Son of Man, death, and a resurrection. Yet in this episode, we see that Jesus' language actually differs a little bit from chapter 8, where we have the first time Jesus tells his disciples of what is to come. In verse 8, Jesus informs his disciples that he's going to be rejected by the elders, the priests, and the scribes. But then here, he adds the verbiage that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The phrasing to deliver up 
this idea of being handed over, it finds significance not only in the context of, of lawsuits within Israel, but also in Jewish theology attached to martyrdom. It also carries a connotation of betrayal. You see, Jesus is providing us a greater glimpse of what is to transpire. And we see that ultimately come to fruition when he's in the garden and he's betrayed with a kiss by Judas Iscariot, delivered up to the Jewish authorities. And as we read this text in verse 31, what seems clear, again, what seems to be spoken so clearly to us is once again not understood by the disciples. This story is actually in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke's account of these events, he states that the meaning was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And in Matthew's account, he says that the disciples were greatly distressed. So not only were the disciples confused, not only could they not perceive it, but Mark makes it clear that they were also afraid. They were fearful to ask what he meant by what he was saying. And though the text doesn't clearly tell us why the disciples were afraid, we, like the disciples, are human, and I think we can surmise some potential reasons for what led to this fear, what led to not asking. I think the first thing we can look at is the last time Jesus had an interaction with his disciples talking about what was to happen. Peter responded by rebuking Jesus, and Jesus responded in return by giving one of the strongest rebukes we've heard from Jesus, where he says, get behind me, Satan. And the disciples are like, well, I don't want to say something because I don't want that response. Or it could be that they understood enough to be afraid of the ramifications for themselves. You see, Jesus understood to be the Messiah. If he were to die, what would that mean for them as his followers? A follower of a dead messianic figure doesn't carry much weight. Or it could also be that they understood enough to, to get the like, envision of what the trajectory of where they're headed, of Jesus and what he's saying, and they ultimately recognize if Jesus is saying what we think he's saying, if he's ultimately saying that he's going to die, I don't know if I can handle that. The pain, the heartache, the sorrow, the future that, that Jesus is saying is going to be a sure reality seems too painful. And so I'm not going to ask for clarity. See, in reality, I think within this group of disciples, there's a good chance those three, if not more, are present amongst this group. Yet we recognize that regardless of the reason, their response was the same. Silence. For they were afraid to ask. At this stage, I think we can all sympathize with the disciples. I mean, the disciples have been with Jesus for a number of years now, walking with him, eating with him, seeing him say these amazing statements about the kingdom of God, seeing him heal blind men, heal people that are demon-possessed, multiply food. They understand that he is the Messiah, 
Yet as Jesus teaches them about what is to come, they're, very, they're questioning the very nature of what it means to be the Messiah. Yet not only do we sympathize with them, but I think we also see ourselves in them. And we need to ask ourselves whether we are so prone to do the same thing that they do. You see, the disciples were wrestling with the fact that Jesus the Messiah was going to have to die. And it did not compute for them. And I'd say for the majority of us in this room, we don't probably wrestle with the fact that Jesus had to die. Because the reality is our very faith in Christ is rooted in the fact that Jesus had to die. Rather, I think we wrestle with what that actually means for our life. For a crucified Jesus is a crucified us. It is one of self-denial. It's the dying of self and living for Christ. So we are wrestling what the word of God means for us in the here and now. So do we shy away from the hard sayings of scripture? Do we screen them out because we feel like that just costs too much? Or do we dig in and seek understanding? Are we actually willing to seek truth? Or are we scared to potentially know the truth and the implications for our life? So when God speaks to us, and this could be in our Bible reading, this could be in sermons preached on Sundays, this could be in our community groups and conversations you have with fellow Christians. When God speaks to us, how good are we at listening? Are we open ears, eager to hear, receive, and apply? Or do we just kind of have this occasional listening, this selective hearing where we have hearing aids and we just pull it out and we don't want to actually receive it? Or for others, are we just simply in one ear and out the other? We leave this building and somebody's like, hey, how's the sermon? You're like, I don't even remember what we talked about. What gospel? Are we in a gospel? In one ear and out the other. Yet unlike the disciples, we don't have Jesus walking right next to us. But arguably, we have something better. We have the word of God. 66 books of God speaking to us, 66 books of God's wisdom, 66 books in which we can seek and find clarity for all areas of life. And as Christians, we have the spirit of God residing within us, where Jesus actually said, it's better that I go so that the spirit can actually come and dwell within you. So again, we have to ask, how good are we at listening? How good are we at seeking to truly understand? You see, do we avoid reading passages about money and finances for worrying about how it's going to change our current spending trends? As consumerism and, and this one-click shopping and this two-day shipping just controlled our life, wanting the next best thing? Is this Advent season focused on the gifts you are giving or the gift you have already received in Christ? Do our finances represent Christ as a priority at all? Or for others, when the Bible speaks of marriage and divorce, do we actually listen to what it has to say? Do we study and seek understanding? 
Wives, do you submit to your husband as your husband submits to the Lord? Husbands, do you seek to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her? Do we take our marriage covenant before the Lord seriously? Or do we just buy into the way of culture's no-fault divorce? Do we love saying God is love, but then not fully want to study what the love of God actually means? Do we elevate the love of God while minimizing the God of truth? Has the mantra, you do you, infiltrated our thinking and our practice? Do our views on sexuality, gender, social justice, do they reflect the God of the Bible? or the gods of the modern age? Do we avoid looking at what the Bible has to say about authority? Do we seek to understand passages like Romans 13 that says no authority exists that has not been instituted by God? Do we subject ourselves to governing authorities? Which maybe that's a question we've never even thought about until this pandemic season. Do we pray for those in authority? Again, according to 1 Timothy 2, 2. Do you pray for President Donald Trump? Do you pray for President-elect Joe Biden? Scripture calls us not just to pray for one of them, but to pray for both. You see, these are things that we can't just be silent on. These are things that we need to seek to understand. And if questions arise, seek answers. Seek answers by reading scripture. And as you read scripture and struggle to understand, seek commentaries that can give you clarity on that or seek other Christians that can speak into those passages, speak truth into your life. Come to one of the elders. Come to myself or Doug. We would love to have those conversations with you. You see, as Christians, we should be seeking to understand God's And we have no need to actually be afraid like the disciples were. Because our God is good. And he desires our good. If you are here this morning and you're fearful of scripture. Fearful of how your current style of life might be challenged. I ask you to ask the question, why? Why are you afraid? What is behind those fears? Because it's definitely not of God. God does not say, avoid my word. He says, dwell in my word where there is riches forevermore. Taste and see that I am good. You see, if we're in that spot of, of wrestling through that question, I urge you to stay, to stay in that wrestle. And as you come to that answer, repent of that and turn to the Lord. Turn from those thoughts and turn to the truth of Scripture in which you find satisfaction and life. You see, Jesus' teaching in this first section really sets the stage for his interaction with his disciples in our second section. And the reality is, as we walk through verses 33 through 37, we're actually going to come full circle and revisit Jesus is teaching in verse 31 with truly a newfound understanding as he magnifies the significance of his actions as we ultimately see Christ as the exemplar of humility. 
So number two, humility in the call of discipleship. Verses 33 through 34 state, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. shocking in light of what they've experienced and yet we like the disciples have seen it and aren't we prone to respond in the same way aren't we prone to lose sight of the word of God and aspire for really our own version of things how would you answer the promise I will be true in Or maybe for some of you, you're like, ooh, that feels a little too strong. I don't really like the term of, like, I will aspire for grace. So what if we just change that to, I will be the best version of myself if. Take a moment and genuinely think through how you would answer that prompt. I will be truly great if. I'm successful. In my field of expertise, I'm viewed as an expert in my field. I will be truly great if I leave a legacy 
doesn't last generations to come. I will be truly great if I leave this world a better place than when I arrived. If I'm viewed as an influencer on social media. If I raise children who are upstanding and respectable citizens in our society. If I'm liked by all I come in contact with. I will be great if I'm always true to myself and achieve my goals. We have to ask the question, what does our drive for greatness reveal about ourselves? Is it is the question not only what are we living for, but who are we living for? You see, it's not that these pursuits that I mentioned above are bad things in and of themselves. But we have to wrestle with whether or not our greatness or our best version of self is actually truly found and rooted in those pursuits. How many of us, when we think about greatness, actually have God as an integral part of that equation? I will be truly great when God is most glorified in my life. 